Today we are continuing in the uh, letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. And uh, in it, the first couple chapters, we're in chapter 2, if you're with us for the first time. Uh, the first two chapters, the Apostle Paul talks a lot about himself. He's kind of giving a, a very brief uh, autobiography, basically to help the Galatians understand that he has the right to be addressing them. He has the right to be uh, calling them back to the faith, uh, that they should listen to him. Because one of the things the Apostle Paul struggled with almost his entire ministry, and I would say his entire ministry from what we have of his letters and from the book of Acts, is that people would question whether or not he had the right or he had the authority as an apostle to really speak to them truth. Even the churches that he started would question whether or not he had this authority to speak to him, them. And so we're picking up in Galatians, and if you'd like to follow along in your Bible, we're in chapter 2. So there's this saying that's out there that says, old habits die hard. I'm sure you've probably heard this saying before. It is certainly very true. Uh, when we get into certain habits, they're difficult to change. They can be personal habits. You know, some people like chew their fingernails, and it's a habit that they can't seem to stop. You know, it starts in their childhood, and it continues on through their adulthood. Uh, sometimes it's habits and communication. Uh, when I do marital counseling, I oftentimes I deal with couples that have unhealthy communication habits. And the problem with habits is that, with very few exceptions, when we're under stress, it's easy for us to fall back into the habit. Even if it's a dysfunctional thing, because it's the comfortable thing, we tend to fall back into that bad habit. But harder than old habits dying hard are old beliefs. Old beliefs die even harder than old habits. And the reason why old beliefs die even harder is because beliefs, where habits just kind of happen and we're not really aware of it, it just sort of becomes a part of our, who we are. Beliefs are the things that we, we really looked at and we decided that these things are true. And we built our lives around these beliefs. We built the way we see the world around these beliefs. And it's very difficult when our beliefs get challenged to, to change those because we consciously made a decision that these things are going to define how I see my life and what I'm going to believe and what I believe is important. And so when beliefs get challenged, people will often fight back much harder than they will if it's a habit that gets challenged. Like you can tell someone you have bad communication habits. Most of the time they'll go, I know, you know, it's hard to change, but I know. Or, you know, someone that has like a habit of like chewing their nails, you know, you really especially when they go down to the nub, you know, you really should probably try and break that habit. I know, but you challenge a belief. That's when you get pushback. You know, how dare you tell me what to think or how dare you tell me what to believe because this is how we shaped our worldview. And even when we become Christians, sometimes it's hard to break some old beliefs that we may have had. You see this happen fairly often if uh, a Muslim becomes a Christian or a Jewish person becomes a Christian, one of the things that they have a hard time shaking or getting out of is the dietary laws because they grew up and they said they grew up as kids that these things, eating these foods make us unclean. Uh, for both Muslims and Jews, for example, eating pork is the thing that makes them unclean. And so even when they become Christians and they know that they are no longer under these dietary regulations, they'll often find it very difficult to feel comfortable with these changes. If you grew up uh, in a particular uh, 
expression of faith, like say Catholicism, which has a lot of extra traditions and teachings around the Bible. Uh, sometimes when people become more biblically grounded in their faith, they still have a hard time kind of separating out some of those things that were taught to them. And I run into this a lot as a pastor. People will want me to bless them like a priest, and I have to tell them, you know, you can go directly to God and seek his blessing. You don't have to, it doesn't have to come through me. And yet people often say, yes, but your prayers are more, you know, effective. It's something like that. And it's like, no, they're not. You know, but it's this, it's this habit. That's hard for people to break. And I come from a background. Uh, I grew, grew up Southern Baptist in the U.S. Southern Baptist is the largest uh, non-Catholic denomination. Uh, we call everything non-Catholic Protestant in the U.S., by the way. Uh, that was confusing to me when I got here. But uh, mo- most of the Southern Baptists don't drink any kind of alcohol, any kind at all. Uh, beer, wine, nothing. And so, you know, you get that ingrained into you. And over time, I've had people come here uh, where at IBCD, we just don't make that a central part of our faith. We don't jump up and down on that. If you want to have a beer, it's okay. If you want to have wine, you know, we just talk about not getting drunk, but we don't talk about, you know, complete absence. But I have sometimes had conversations back and forth where people, this is an ingrained thing into their life. It's hard for them to move out of these places when they're told that this is a belief. So in the letter to Galatians, the old belief that was having a very hard time dying was the belief that a person had to first become Jewish before they could become Christians. And the way that they would become Jewish is as a man, you would be circumcised. As a woman, you would be baptized. There's a lot less at stake for a woman becoming a convert to Judaism than a man becoming a convert to Judaism. It was a lot less painful. And in the early church, this is a a debate that goes on and goes on and goes on and goes on and goes on. And you read several times in the scriptures, it looks like they come to a resolution and then it pops up again. This is one of the old beliefs that died very, very hard. And in fact, the apostle Paul becomes one of the things that he has to deal with his entire career. And the reason why is that people somehow thought that if you, could be, you had to become Jewish, and then by becoming Jewish, you put yourself into sort of the, the Jewish stream of, of God's righteousness, and then the Messiah comes along, and now you're a Christian. And the, and the belief was somehow you could have the law of Moses and the cross of Christ working together. But the problem is that these two things can't work together. Because the cross of Jesus Christ is the final sacrifice once and for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And this puts an end, for example, to the need for animal sacrifice. There's no more need for animal sacrifice. In fact, to go back to animal sacrifice is to reject the sacrifice of Christ. And so it puts you out of that stream of the need for animal sacrifice. And in fact... You know, there's a movement in Israel to rebuild the temple on Temple Mount. And I find it interesting that a lot of uh, Christians, especially in my country, the U.S., are very supportive of this idea because they don't really stop to think about if they reinstitute animal sacrifice, what that is saying is that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ didn't have any meaning. And you can't have those things together. There's also, there's no longer need to be made righteous or clean by keeping kosher, by eating or not eating certain things, because we are made clean by the sacrifice of Christ, the blood of Christ on the cross. It washes away our sins, covers us in his righteousness. Again, 
His sacrifice fulfills the demands of the law. Jesus said, don't think that I've come to do away with the law. But then very importantly, he says, but I have come to fulfill the law. And he fulfills the demands of the law upon the cross. And there's no need for circumcision as a sign upon your physical body that you're the chosen people because the Apostle Paul says now it's our hearts that are circumcised, our hearts that have been marked by God, not necessarily our bodies. And so all these things are going on and, and, the, and Paul is having to deal with this because this is a deep place of confusion in the church. And in fact, this idea that Christ's sacrifice for our sins and the resurrection being the event which defines what it means to be a, a human who has found their redemption in Christ is the central fundamental bedrock of Christianity. The cross is enough. And what Jesus Christ did on the cross is enough. And this is what separates us, for example, from, from what we would consider brothers and sisters who may not, we may not agree with on everything theologically, but we can still call them brothers and sisters because we agree upon the cross of Jesus Christ being the centerpiece of what it means to be saved. So, for example, as Baptists, I'm, I identify my background as Baptist. I believe very much that you should follow Jesus Christ in believer's baptism for many reasons. But I will stop short of saying that you must do this in order to be saved. I believe it's part of discipleship. I think it's a good thing to do. But it's not something that is necessary for salvation. The cross is enough. And we see an example of this, the thief that was crucified with Christ. He didn't have time to get baptized as a believer. But when he expressed his faith in Christ, even in a very, you know, uh, not clearly theological way, where he just says, when you enter your kingdom, remember me. Jesus says, you know, today you'll be with me in paradise. So this is why we could call people who are Methodists and Presbyterians and Lutherans brothers and sisters in Christ because we agree together that the cross is enough. We may disagree on other points of theology, and we do. All three of those particular traditions emphasize an infant baptism. And we, would, we, would get, we could get on our, our little podiums and like, you know, tell each other what we think is right and biblical, but at the end of the day, it's the cross of Christ that brings us salvation. And at any time that there's a faith that says the cross of Christ plus something, this is where we have a disagreement. This is where we say, no, you can't add to it. You can't say the cross of Christ plus following this ritual or the cross of Christ plus adding this thing into your life. The cross of Christ plus. Those pluses is where things get to the place where we have to say we can't agree with that. And the church coming to an understanding that Jesus Christ is enough is very much due to the Apostle Paul. He fought this fight. He fought this fight in the early church because in the early church, God used the Apostle Paul to prevent the church from falling into a heresy which said, you have to first add to the cross by becoming Jewish and then trusting in the cross and becoming a Christian. And if it weren't for the Apostle Paul fighting this fight, and he had to fight it his entire career, we wouldn't see Christianity in the same expression as it is today. In fact, there'd probably be very few Christians. Because if the one section of the church, early church, had gotten their way, well, there wouldn't be a lot of Gentile men willing to become Jews before they became Christians, especially adult men. And I find it interesting that it is through Paul's passion for the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, that this argument came up. 
that this idea that the cross is enough is really pushed to the forefront in the early church because of the argument that whether or not a, a, a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, could, could become a believer without first becoming Jewish. That was the vehicle that pushed this theology to the front, that the cross is enough. So let's look at Galatians. We're going to pick it up in chapter 2. The Apostle Paul, if, we, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, he's just expressed, he's just talked about his first basically three years of being a Christian. He talks about uh, having a revelation of Christ. And then after three years of being in Damascus, he went to Jerusalem. And then if you read Acts, we went through this a little bit in our Thursday Bible study, which you can join uh, by through our app if you'd like to. He then gets sent to his hometown, which is Tarsus. And it seems like he's there for quite a long time before a friend named Barnabas brings him to Antioch, which is north of Jerusalem. And it's in Antioch that Paul and Barnabas, they really start to become these very important teachers in the early church. And in Antioch, a lot of people who are non-Jews, who are Gentiles, sometimes I also call them Greeks in the scriptures, start to become believers. And so then they go back to Jerusalem. They're taking a gift of money uh, to help people in Jerusalem that are, are undergoing a famine. And this is where it picks up. So he goes 14 years later. So he takes a big jump after he talks about his first three years. He says, 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. So Paul goes to Jerusalem to share with the people, the apostles in Jerusalem, what it is he's teaching. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was, had run the race, I was running or had run my race in vain. Now, just to let you know, there's some scholars that, that, that debate whether or not this visit is being referred to in Acts chapter 11 or Acts chapter 15. Uh, for those of you who, who care, <laughs> uh, I, think it's more, I think it's the one in Acts chapter 11 because Acts chapter 15 is kind of this big council. But Acts chapter 11 is more this private meeting that Paul has and Barnabas has. So I think it's in 11. If you want to look that up and if you're interested, we can always talk about it later. We don't have time to go into all the details uh, in the sermon, but let's look at Acts chapter 11 real quick. This kind of gives us a little bit of background. So it says, The apostles and the brothers through Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of the Lord. So when it says Judea, it's really talking about you know, Jerusalem, that area around there. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of an uncircumcised man and ate with them. And Peter began to explain everything to them precisely what had happened. So this is an interesting, there's like a lot in between the lines here. This is talking about Peter being the first one, because he's the chief apostle. He is the first one who's called by God to take the gospel to a non-Jew. And the, the guy's name, he was a Roman centurion named Cornelius. You can read about his story in Acts chapter 10. Peter comes. Uh, actually, Peter, is, is he kind of debates with God a little bit about going into the presence of a Gentile, but he does. He goes. The Holy Spirit comes. And if you notice here, the way that uh, the way they're described, it says the circumcised believers criticized him. So these are the Jewish believers. These are the believers who were Jews first and then became Gentiles. And they are struggling with this idea that the Gentiles can just become Christians, that the Holy Spirit can come to them. And they criticize Peter, the chief apostle. 
And they say, you went into the house of an uncircumcised person. You went into the house of a Gentile, which they considered unclean, and you ate with them. And so Peter has to explain himself. I find it interesting that in the early church that the chief apostle, Peter, the one whom Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church, he is criticized. And he finds himself actually in the middle of the storm. I kind of feel bad for Peter because Peter's not a theologian. He's a fisherman that followed Christ. Paul is more the theologian. And Peter actually struggles with this issue a lot. And so in spite of being this, uh, and so then it goes on, there seems to have been a peaceful resolution. They talk back and forth, and you can read it if you want to. But then you see that this thing isn't over yet. In, in chapter 19 of Acts 11, it says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen, if you remember, Stephen was the first, uh, he's the first martyr of the church. And he is stoned to death. And this is the first introduction we get to Saul. It says, and Saul was watching the cloaks of the people who were throwing the rocks. And he gave approval to what was going on. So those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection to Stephen traveled as far as Phoenician, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, Barnabas, for example, is from Cyprus, went to Antioch which is where Paul and Barnabas went to, and began to speak to Greeks also. So you can see in the early church, you had a group that was like, we're only going to tell the Jews. You had a group that was saying, we're going to tell everybody. We're going to tell Jews as well as Gentiles. Greeks is another kind of term in the Bible for Gentiles. Telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So you have this, you can see that there's these these two things going on. And they kind of bless each other. They kind of say this is all okay, but you're going to see that it doesn't really end. And then we find at the end of chapter 11, it says the disciples, each according to their ability, now he's speaking about the disciples at Antioch, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. There was a famine going on. And this they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas. And Saul, and this is the trip that I believe Paul is talking about here in Galatia, where he went with them to meet with them in private. And he goes in private because Paul's not sure if his work and if Barnabas' work is going to be blessed by the leadership of the church. So he says he meets first with Peter and a few others, and then he says, I also met James later on. So let's go back to this one. He says, 14 years later, I went again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. Titus was a Gentile. He was an uncircumcised convert to Christ. I went in response to a revelation set before them the gospel I preached among the Gentiles, but I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. So for the Apostle Paul, going back under the law is going back under slavery. And this is a big deal because that is what the Galatians are doing. That's why he's writing this letter to the Galatians. The the people in Galatia were coming back under the law. They were being convinced that in order to be a good Christian, you had to be under the law of Moses. So this is what he's setting up for. And then he, he speaks to the Galatians. He tells them, he says, listen, we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain, remain with you. As for those who seem to be important, 
Whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. So he kind of pulls out of his autobiography and he talks to the Galatians and he says to them, I'm doing this for your sake, by the way. Because you, most people in Galatia, were non-Jews who were coming to know the faith. He says, I'm fighting this fight for you. And yet, and we're going to get to it later on, and yet you are abandoning me and you're going back into the law of Moses. You're abandoning Christ and you're going back into the law of Moses. I'm fighting this fight so that you're, so the truth will remain with you. And you're listening to folks that are bringing to you a false teaching and you're following that false teaching right away from the grace of Christ back under law. And then he says, then he goes back to his Jerusalem trip. On the contrary, they, being the disciples that he met with, and we know uh, it's Peter and it's James, uh, the two ones he meets with mostly. He stays 15 days with Peter. It says, on the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. Actually, I got to back up. That 15 days was his first trip after three years. Uh, this next trip, though, he talks to just the, the Peter, James, John uh, in private. For God, who is at the work of the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. It's interesting that he, he doesn't really acknowledge that Peter was the first one that goes to the Gentiles, uh, but this is kind of the general place of, of where their, their sphere of influence is. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and, then, and they to the Jews. All they asked is we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Remember, they had come bringing a gift from the church in Antioch to the people in Jerusalem, and they wanted to continue this. Remember the poor. Remember those who are in need. And, and Paul's like, no problem. I'm all for that. And it seems like a peaceful resolution at this point. But the immediate verse following is then Paul telling a story when Peter comes up to Antioch to visit the church there. And in between the time that they had had this resolution and Peter coming to Antioch, somewhere along the line, Peter had vacillated on this issue. He didn't really know where he stood anymore. And he began to withdraw from meeting with the Gentiles and eating with the Gentiles. And Paul takes the chief apostle to the woodshed and rebukes him in front of everybody and then immortalizes the rebuke by writing about it in this letter. We'll talk about this more next week, but this is the verse right after. It looks like, okay, things have settled down. It says, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, and James is much more of a Jewish kind of background guy. In fact, if you read the book of James, it's much more in the context of Judaism. And Martin Luther did not like the book of James for that reason. He called the, he called the book of Galatians, My Katie. He named it after his wife, my Katerina. He loved the book of Galatians. He called the book of James the epistle of straw because he just didn't think it was worthy of anything. I think Martin Luther was a little over the top. I think James is a great book. But I think he also identifies here with Peter. I mean, Paul, before certain men came from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he's afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. So you see, this is an issue in the early church. This old belief is dying hard, and it continues to die hard. And Paul fights this fight throughout his entire career. And we're going to get into this 
this argument that he has with Peter uh, next week, this little salacious bit of scripture. But what can we take about, take, what can we take away from what we looked at today? And I think the main thing we can take away from it is just a affirmation that trusting in the cross of Jesus Christ for salvation is enough. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for our sins is enough. Who Jesus is and what he was willing to do is the word of God being made flesh, dwelling among us, and then taking upon himself our sin. Paul writes it in a different place. He became sin for us so that we could receive his righteousness is enough. Now, once we get through this narrow way, which is the cross of Jesus Christ, on the other side of that, well, we still need to grow in our faith. And there's a lot of things that come after we become, there's a lot of things that come in the Christian walk after the cross, growing in discipleship. But when it comes to salvation, the cross is enough. But with that said, of course, this is a nuanced thing, right? Because it is quite possible to get derailed by following after traditions or following after other things plus once the cross is, once you've gone through the place of salvation. And many of you come from different traditions and like what you do afterward as a, as a, again, as if someone that grew up and I think the Bible clearly talks about, you know, believers baptism, I would say the next step of discipleship and following Christ as Lord is to be baptized as a believer. But you can have debates with people. There's like great people, Christians that you would, I would never want to say I doubt their salvation. Guys like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and John Stott and N.T. Wright and, you know, numerous people. R.C. Sproul, for those of you who are uh, Reformation guys. You know, these are, these are people who are deeply impactful in the kingdom of God. And yet they all were comfortable with infant baptism and, wouldn't, and say you don't need to follow Christ in a believer's baptism. Where I would disagree with them profoundly on that, they're still my brothers, and I've learned from them. I've learned from reading The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Every Christian should read The Cost of Discipleship. John Stott is an Anglican minister. He's very influential. N.T. Wright's one of my favorite living theologians. He's an Anglican. They, I disagree with them on this one issue, but that doesn't mean that we're not brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ. However... The truth is, sometimes these old beliefs can get in the way of our growth. And this is where you struggle with finding freedom in Christ. And we all go through this place. Once we're through that place of the cross being enough for salvation, then it becomes, well, what do I do with this? What do I do with the things that I, I have believed and that are very important to me? I'm going to, among Germans who struggle with believers' baptism, they often will, will struggle with, well, what do I do with my confirmation? What do I do with this time where I went through a confirmation for some i've heard them say ah, it was just an opportunity to get gifts and money i've heard from others no this was an important kind of step in my spiritual walk what do i do with this when it comes to after putting my faith in christ what do i do with you know the different ways that we express you know some people who are more pentecostal brothers and sisters they'll say well you have to have this you know you have to express your faith through the expression of, of uh, sign gifts like speaking in tongues and things like that. Well, what do you do with that? You know, how do you, how do you walk through this together? Because it's, it's not essential for salvation, but is it an important part of growth? I don't know. You know, these are things we go back and forth with. My personal preference, I'm not a big charismatic. 
I find the whole speaking in tongue things a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, but then at the same time, when I look at the scripture, I have to be honest and say, my going completely away from it and not really wanting anything to do with it all, that's not scriptural either. You know, so you have to be, have to be honest with ourselves. You know, what is it that we're doing? What are we caught up in? What is it that prevents our growth or, or slows it down? And this is why I believe that as believers, we have to have an examined faith. You need to look at your faith. You need to know why you believe what you believe. And as, as we deal with issues within the church, be it the local church or the church, everything has to be examined by the cross of Christ. And if we're willing to take issues, be they social issues or theological issues, and we put them up to the cross, then we'll, then we'll find are these mountains to die on or are these things that we discuss back and forth? For example, uh, for thousands and thousands of years, the institution of slavery was widespread throughout the world. And it didn't immediately come to an end when Christ was crucified and rose again. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes within the context of cultural slavery. The book of Philemon, for example, is in that context. But over time, as people began to examine through the cross what it means to how one treats one who is a brother or a sister human being, regardless of their faith, do we have the right to own them and to make their lives miserable? Well, the cross began to change that. And eventually slavery has disappeared around the world, except in some areas where you don't see much Christianity. Other issues that you hold up there, you have to ask, okay, can you live a certain lifestyle? One of the ones we're running into now is the gender thing, and, and also you know, not just uh, on the gay side of things, but also on the, on the straight side of things with polyamorism and all this weird kind of expressions of sexual deviancy. Can you live an unrepentant lifestyle? If you hold it up to the cross, you say, I do not repent from my lifestyle. Then can you really receive salvation? If you live in a place of unrepentant, stubborn sin. That becomes an issue, right? And yet in other places, even the apostle Paul did this. He said, you know what? In things that you might think this this should be important. He said, you know, meat that's been sacrificed to an idol when it's sold in the marketplace. Yeah, you can buy it and eat it. It's just meat. He held it up to the cross of Christ and went, this doesn't really matter. And we might think, well, that should matter. You shouldn't eat meat sacrificed to an idol. And he says, no, as long as you're not worshiping, but it's just meat, whatever. Surprising. Some people I've been told, I've had people tell me, since you do not keep the Jewish Sabbath, which would be Saturday, not Sunday, you're going to hell. And the Apostle Paul, he writes it in the book of Romans. He goes, yeah, to some people, one day is more important than the other. To others, every day is important. Whatever you do, do so with a thankful heart to God and a clear conscience before the Lord. Because he held these things up to the cross and went, this really doesn't matter. These are old beliefs that are dying hard. And so we need to live an examined faith because we're in a time right now where our society is telling us we need to change our faith. And this isn't the first time. Society has told the church oftentimes, you need to change your faith. And you know what? There have been times when society was a step ahead of the church because we were stuck in our own traditions. Again, in my country, it was people, it was the society that really told the church and also they used the church, they went through the church in the South, about our racial issues in the United States. You had a lot of racist churches 
that didn't really want to change. They didn't want to acknowledge the fact that we're equal in the eyes of God, regardless of our, where we come from, our skin color, whatever. And it took being forced to look at this belief through the cross to make changes there. But sometimes society says, you need to make this change, and we shouldn't just fall back on tradition and go, no, but we need to hold it up to the cross and say, okay, does it pass? What does the cross say about this? And we don't just give in to sin because society says, well, we'd like you to. But at the same time, we have to be willing to acknowledge our place of sin if we're in it when we hold it up to the cross. And that could be, as a, that could be a societal issues. Those can be personal issues. Someone says to you, this thing in your life, this isn't glorifying to God. Now, maybe they're right. And you hold that thing up to, your, to the cross and you go, is this an important issue? Is this putting me in a place of unrepentant sin? When I have people come to me and say, if you do not worship on Saturday, the Sabbath, then you are violating the law, the law of Moses, and you're going to hell. So, and I take that accusation and I hold it up to the cross and I see this doesn't hold water because I'm saved through the cross of Christ. I'm not saved on what day I worship Christ. I'm saved by the cross of Christ. I'm not saved by what I eat or I don't eat. That's why the meat sacrificed to idols. I'm saved by the cross of Christ. I'm saved by the cross of Christ. I'm not saved by, you know, adding anything else in there that people want to add in. That's what I mean when I say you need to examine your faith. And we need to be thoughtful. We're in a time in our society right now. As believers, we need to be able to give an answer for the hope that we have. We need to be able to do it with gentleness and respect. But we have to be able to examine our faith and give an answer for the reasons why we believe what we believe. Otherwise, we'll be tossed around by the wind. We won't stand for anything. Or we'll stand for the wrong things for the wrong reason. Which drives people away from Christ. This has been a struggle in the church from pretty much day one. We see it right here in Galatians, where the struggle was, do you have to first become a circumcised Jew before you can become a Christian? We've just kind of changed the parameters of those things over the years, and we still struggle with them. But the Apostle Paul examined his faith, and he wrote about that examined faith to us, to the Galatians, by extension to us. And we benefit from this. So may we also continue to live that examined faith so that we can be a people that can share the gospel of Christ in a relevant way to the world around us because the cross is still relevant. Despite what people say, the cross is relevant because as long as people are in sin, as long as they're in a place where their relationship is broken from God, the cross of Christ will be necessary. But the cross of Christ will always be enough. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word, and we thank you for the struggle that we see in the early church. Because in that struggle, so much was revealed about understanding of our faith. And in that struggle, there's a revelation, too, of, again, just how important it is for us to keep our eyes on you and follow you. And Lord, we pray that you'd give us wisdom and hope and clarity of thought as we, as modern-day believers, are walking through this world that likes to think of itself as so much more sophisticated and full of understanding than people were in the past. And the truth is, people are people. And we're still drawn away or drawn into places of, 
of rebellion or distance from you, broken relationships with our God for pretty much all the same reasons as humans ever have been. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to continue to look at our faith and to continue to look at our faith through the lens of Christ and to look at the things that we've believed that maybe we've, we've decided to stand on this mountain which doesn't need to be fought over and to shift to those places which are very, very important. That need for repentance in order to receive salvation, the need to put our trust in Christ and in Christ alone. And we thank you that the cross is enough. That it's not, just, it's not jumping through a bunch of rituals and hoops. The cross is enough. We thank you for that. Help us to stand on that as we continue to walk through our faith journey to draw closer to you, to be more like you, and to be part of, a, be part of this kingdom kingdom of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.